This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Danny Cullingworth. Danny is a lawyer and climate economist working on the design and implementation of scientifically grounded climate policy. He is the policy director at Carbon Plan and a research fellow at American University's Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy. Danny holds a PhD and JD from Stanford University. I asked Danny about the main message in a book that he co-authored with David Victor entitled Making Climate Policy Work. In this book, Danny and David critique the dominance of carbon markets in the climate change policy discourse. They argue that such markets are layered onto existing regulations that are usually doing most of the work to mitigate carbon emissions. A central challenge that markets face is that their implementation is, in reality, highly political and often co-opted by those who are regulated. We also talked about carbon offsets, which are essentially a payment for ecosystem services scheme that is often added to carbon market arrangements to provide regulated actors with an option to pay for carbon sequestration elsewhere to enable them to keep polluting where they are. Danny expressed some serious concerns about carbon offset policies as well due to the lack of additionality in many offset programs or the lack of credible proof that carbon sequestration being paid for is actually occurring because of the offset program and wouldn't have happened without it. We concluded our conversation by talking about the future of voluntary carbon markets and the promise of carbon removal technologies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Danny Collinworth. But great, Danny. Thanks for, as as I said earlier, thanks for, you know, spending the time with us. The guests really do make the podcast. So I appreciate your your generosity in talking with me today. Appreciate you reaching out. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I want to start with the question I always start these interviews with now. And you might have noticed it in the notes that I sent you that I call this the origin story question. And I guess to be transparent, for I think for me, this this is um derived from superhero and fairy tales where, you know, there was Peter Parker and now there's Spider-Man. So what's your version of getting bit by a spider is kind of what I mean by this. But, you know, when you try to make sense of your journey to your current position at Carbon Plan at, and your other position at American University, how do you make sense of it, both in terms of your own decisions and events or experiences that you went through? How do you kind of narrate that to yourself and others? It, for me, it's a lot of it is a tension between having a long-standing interest that I fell into very much by accident in college in a research-oriented profession. And for a long time, I thought I would be an academic. And the tension between those interests and skill sets and my focus on the nitty-gritty of how policy and politics are done, um, and in particular, studying environmental markets and climate policy, what's actually going on in terms of who's making what decisions and lobbying for what outcomes. So I've been constantly torn between wanting to understand and think really carefully about things like how the carbon cycle works and how various forms of you know carbon offsets interact with the carbon cycle and affect outcomes. Um, and also really interested in who's writing the rules for how that accounting gets done and exactly which stakeholders are benefiting from one outcome or another. Um, and, and I found it's really talent, uh, really challenging to pursue both at the same time and straddled for a while a, a variety of academic and academic adjacent gigs until it became clear that I really needed to start my own thing um, and co-founded the group I'm currently at Carbon Plan uh, with a couple of great colleagues 
to set out in a nonprofit academic adjacent space to do applied research on these issues. Um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the big theme. The slightly longer story is I um, bounced between departments in grad school for a long time, in part because my two closest PhD advisors, both of them passed away unexpectedly uh, from illness. And so I was a bit of an orphan, which was uh, a, both a, a blessing and a curse, a blessing in the sense that I, I got to know some really great people for a while. Um, and learn a lot from them. And as a result of the change, be exposed to many different ideas and departments and disciplines. And the downside was, is I, I didn't really have a primary academic mentor by the end of the process. Um, and so that, I think that sort of augmented the split between I'm really interested in research and I'm also really interested in what's going on in the real world that is really hard to squeeze that into an academic career. On your CV, it, it notes that um, you have... Uh, both a JD and a PhD from Stanford. Can you reflect on that kind of dual professional identity and how that relates to what we're talking about? It, it's even a little bit more uh, split than it might even seem because uh, the PhD program I was in is a, a program that was a really good fit for me. Uh, and I think very challenging for some folks because it basically had no rules which meant I could assemble a committee and study classes in radically different departments and sort of pick and choose my own path in a way that is is maybe quite a bit more flexible than some other PhD programs. But I had this, this moment, um, I had been studying climate policy and how modeling, mostly energy systems modeling of climate mitigation policies, um, projected costs and benefits from early like 1990s era um, climate policy proposals. And because at the time I was doing this in the you know early, mid, late 2000s, um, there were relatively few Americans that were engaged very seriously in climate policy because the Bush administration was generally opposed to legally binding climate policy. The Europeans had maybe a 10-year head start on some of this. And the, my co-author, the, the book that we're going to talk a little bit about today, David Victor, was a European-adjacent American scholar. So he was one of the few people in the US talking and thinking about these specific issues. Um, and to make a long story short, uh, I was uh, working on various pieces of the policy proposals that went into the Waxman-Markey bill, which is the first major legislative effort in the, the first part of the Obama administration to set up a legally binding climate policy system in the US. And it was all about carbon markets, which is what I'd been studying. Um, and I went from being one of the more knowledgeable experts at the time about some of the mechanics of the policy proposals when the staff who drafted the initial legislative proposal put their first ideas into print. And by the time that bill had moved through uh, various legislative processes, the issues that I knew relatively well at the start had turned into Greek to me, as for example, the, the oversight of carbon offsets had shifted from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which I kind of understood as a concept and knew, and there was pre-funding for the National Academies of Science to come in and periodically study what's going on and make recommendations. That was the draft bill. By the end of it, jurisdiction had been sent over to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission on the theory that these credits were commodities and futures contracts. Um, and major changes with the U.S. Department of Agriculture being the sort of subject matter point lead. And again, as a as like an academic who is relatively new to especially federal policy, watching this happen and watching the language and the statute morph, it made me realize it was a foreign language and I needed to learn the language if I wanted to take my applied research interests and really translate them into practice. And that was when the light bulb went on that I needed to go to law school. Um, and I love being a lawyer uh, and I to be perfectly honest, hated law school. Can I ask you what you didn't like about law school? Um, I really love practical things. I thought going to law school would be a chance to learn from 
from practitioners who are also scholars. And, and for the most part, legal education is, is heavily theoretical, which was just a huge strain for me um, because I'm, I'm interested in how things work. And it turns out that going to law school is not a particularly good way to learn how the law works. It's a mm. necessary prerequisite. Like if you want to be a faculty member, you better get a PhD. Um, but most of that learning is done after the education. Right. I mean, I would certainly agree with that, that at least half, sometimes it feels like almost all of what I do is is not things I was formally trained to do. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, we, we do want to talk about this book. Um, but before we do that, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit more about Carbon Plan as an organization, how long ago you founded it, kind of what the size is, what the goals are, and how you're working to achieve those goals. So we started this as uh, a nonprofit climate research organization. Um, we're very focused on the transparency and scientific integrity of a variety of issues in climate mitigation and increasingly impacts and adaptation. Um, but my my co-founders and I, the, the two co-founders uh, besides me, Jeremy Freeman and Joe Hammond, had a kind of a strong background in open science broadly, how to make tools and computing techniques open and accessible, especially for problems that involved a lot of computational complexities, a lot of earth systems science issues do. Um, and, and I brought the sort of like hard-boiled, you know, climate policy detective nonsense to that equation. And we do a lot of applied research, basically, uh, thinking about, um, we've done quite a bit of work on on the carbon offsets market and some oversight and transparency work there. Um, thinking a lot about carbon removal, which is one of the sort of frontier activities we're going to need to address as we cut emissions deeply uh, and rapidly. And increasingly thinking about climate impacts and climate impact services as a variety of private efforts have sprung up to say, you know, what's the fire risk on a piece of property? If you go to, you know, any of the sort of popular consumer facing internet, you know, house buying websites, you can get climate scores now. Where does all that stuff come from? Um, is it grounded in the right ways to think about things? Those are the types of questions we're very interested in asking and, and hopefully helping to answer. Um, we're about 12 people right now, and we, we made the bright decision to start all of this in March of 2020, uh, which was a, a pretty ridiculous time to think about doing something new, but uh, that's when we did it. Uh, and it's been uh, just a, a crazy ride and, and finally feels like a place that, at least for me, allows me to bring together this combination of research and, and application in the way I want to do it. We publish peer-reviewed papers from time to time, but that's not you know all we do. And in fact, we sort of oriented around doing practical and applied things that need to be done sometimes more quickly than that process allows. Okay. Are there any kind of lessons learned already from your experience in starting this in the last couple of years? Uh, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I, I think, you know, part of what we we did, it's got kind of a simple thing in a certain way, but um, Jeremy and our, our colleague Kata, who runs the product side of our org, are both really talented uh web programmers and we had worked with an incredible designer. So we basically built a website. We can put content up that I think looks pretty good. Um, and so that means our ability to put out sort of rapid turnaround analysis that has integrity underneath it, but is polished and, and professional. It's very quick. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, there was a, a story, I'm not going to name names or pick on anybody, but a publication just came out that replicated an analysis we put out in March and it just came through peer review, you know, some, six, seven months later, and just the feeling of knowing that we, we basically did all the analytics and put them up, you know, very quickly uh, in public uh, to, to replicate a very similar study, uh, or I guess to, to put out the information that's since come out in the form of a peer-reviewed study from another team, 
I mean, that, that ability to move quickly is really important to addressing a lot of the critical problems we run into. Um, and I guess a key lesson learned is that, you know, it's been very challenging to think about traditional academic peer review as a way to do applied work on fast moving policy systems, because by the time the process is complete, the salience of the analysis is sometimes different, or at least the relevance to affecting decisions can be lost during that time process. So mm. there's a, we've done a lot of reflecting on how to both engage in those processes, because um, we rely heavily on peer-reviewed academic work. We, we believe in the enterprise of natural and social science, but um, just a lot of tensions around how to do that kind of work and make it timely and applied and applicable. Um, you know, if you wait a year or two to get something out, the policy conversation has moved on. Right. Without you, mm -hmm. potentially. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to turn to this book, Making Climate Policy Work, which, as you said, you co-wrote with uh, David Victor. And for the audience, and maybe for me, um, can we just start with a very kind of nuts and bolts introduction to I mean, as you mentioned, carbon markets and similar language and approaches have really dominated a lot of the climate change policy space. And that's a lot of what you're talking about in the book. So can we just um, start with an introduction of what a carbon market is and what it's supposed to do well? Sure. So a, a carbon market as an idea, and, and we'll talk a little bit about carbon taxes, this is a, a related form of carbon pricing, but the book focuses significantly on carbon markets. And the idea with a carbon market is, is we kind of know from the physical climate science side of things that emissions budgets are what drive, especially at the global level, right? The climate outcomes we're worried about and we're trying to mitigate. So the idea with the market, whether it's done globally or at a much more local scale, is to create basically an emissions budget. And it's essentially creating private property rights to access the global commons. Um, and then it's creating a system of allocating those rights to people. Uh, and at the end of the day, what a what a compliance carbon market is, is it's a requirement for regulated emitters to periodically surrender so-called compliance instruments that are equal to their emissions. And it's basically trying to set a cumulative path to getting the reductions where you want to see them. Um, but the critical distinction between a carbon market and more traditional forms of government intervention is that the decision-making as to who cuts emissions and when is delegated to the private sector actors that are regulated by the program. And really the, the governance focus is on saying, what are the cumulative emissions budgets and outlooks? And how do we design an enforcement and compliance system? All the decisions about how to comply with that sort of overarching structure are delegated to private actors. And the theory is that that's going to be the most economically efficient way to make the big transformations that are required to mitigate climate change. Okay. So I mean, maybe simplistically, if, if we're calling it cap and trade, it's it's the government that's doing the capping and it's the private actors that are doing the trading. Yep, that's right. And and the hook, this is like thinking like a lawyer for a second here, the hook is that the polluter subject to the program, they face a legal obligation to hold a certain number of allowances or offsets and turn them in periodically. And if they don't do that, they face a fine or a penalty that is draconian enough to make them want to do that. And that's basically how you operationalize it. And that's exactly right. So with the cap and trade program, the government sets the budget and the private sector decides when to cut emissions and who cuts the emissions and they can trade the right to do so back and forth. Okay. 
And before we started the interview, Danny, you mentioned to me that there's some debate over characterizing this situation as a a property rights based regime. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that debate? Sure. I mean, this is this like quickly getting into like if you think really carefully about what these systems are, how the law and how the politics surrounding the law operates. And I just I just want to take a step back and say that you know the the goal of this book, which is very much a collaborative project with a longtime uh, mentor and friend David Victor, um, was to try and think through a, a systematic effort to describe the political forces that shape these outcomes. Um, and I think underlying the sort of theory of carbon markets is the idea that markets are efficient ways to allocate limited resources. But the key premise there is that you have like a property right, that there's a well-defined sort of legal and conceptual idea of what that tradable asset is. And one of the things I find really interesting that's kind of a tell as to the sort of cognitive dissonance around some of these issues, take any United States uh, emissions trading program. It could be the uh, sulfur acid rain program, the progenitor to the main climate efforts. It could be the California program or the East Coast states climate programs. What you will find in all of the regulations or, or the enabling legislation is a statement that says these tradable instruments, these pollution allowances are not property when they're not property rights. It's a weird thing for legal regimes to say if the fundamental premise of these programs is that these are tradable assets that, that owners should feel sort of relatively secure in holding and trading like a financial asset. Yet there's an explicit disclaimer on the tin that says, actually, that's kind of not what this is. Um, and the reason is in, in US law that um, we have a, a concept called takings, where if the federal government uh, harms or infringes on your property rights, you can demand compensation. And so there's a concern, I think, increasingly well-founded um, given the conservative shift in the federal courts that um, if these assets are deemed to be property rights, anything that affects their value, any changes to the regulatory system, if you needed to tighten the stringency of these programs, which as a preview, you have to do because politically you never stand up a truly ambitious program at the start. If you had to affect the value, reduce the number of allowances in the future, um, there's possible claims that these would be legal takings. And so from the get-go, everybody is sort of stamped on these things. These are not property rights, which is meant to, I think, deflect those kinds of legal concerns. But I tell you this, this sort of deep dive, not that we want to nerd out on how takings law works, but because underneath this concept of trading a stable asset, you already have like a major legal and, and governance sort of risk lurking in the background. And that turns out you see that everywhere you look, uh, and that's not the only example. Okay. So as you said, we're already kind of getting into the weeds here and you've mentioned there's this kind of, um, there's a story about how carbon markets should work. And you've already intimated that a lot of your discussion is about the kind of political realities that carbon markets confront once people are actually trying to implement them. Could you talk to me about how the process of implementation has gone how well different carbon markets have lived up to the promise of this kind of idealized story of um, market efficiency being the most cost-effective way to reduce carbon emissions. Yeah, and at the outset, let me just flag one of the things we did in this book. You know, David and I come from from different political and intellectual traditions, um, but I, I think one of the things we did with the book that is maybe different from some of the criticism you might encounter about these approaches is we didn't set out to say markets are bad. Um, and the, 
the premise of the analysis in the book is that the efficiency benefits would probably be significant if you could get them. And the question is, do the politics ever allow you to get them? Um, so I just wanted to, to touch on that for, for just a minute, because you know part of what we're arguing is you don't have to be somebody who thinks that these uh, approaches actually aren't as efficient as proponents believe to have some significant concerns uh, about their real world efficacy. And the sort of impetus for the book was that he and I had been working together for a long time. And for uh, your listeners who are not steeped in the climate mitigation conversation, it's really important to emphasize, basically everybody's been talking about markets for 30 years. This is not an outsider idea. This is the dominant, everybody talks about markets. And David and I both work in very applied places. Um, and he's worked a lot with corporations and and some international governments. I've tended to work more with public sector and non nonprofit sector actors. And you know, one of the things we were both struck by is everybody's talking about markets, but the things that people are actually doing often bear little relationship to the market-based narrative we saw. And it was the realization that there's this big disconnect between pretty substantial action on the ground across the world uh, and the talk about markets that, that led to our interest in writing the book. And as we dug into the experience, particularly with implementing these programs in the real world, um, we realized there were a structural set of patterns that could help describe not only the outcomes, but the mechanisms by which those outcomes are produced. And in general, where you see carbon markets, and it just as a flag, we don't see them in that many places. There's approximately 25% of the world's emissions are now covered by some form of carbon pricing instrument. Most of those carbon prices are very, very low, whether they're carbon taxes or carbon trading programs. Um, and only a few jurisdictions have relied, at least rhetorically, uh, to a large degree on these programs. What you see is they're implemented alongside stronger regulations that affect the same emitters. We could talk about how that interaction affects the outcome of the programs. Um, and they're either limited in scope to sectors where the political economy of managing the consequences of higher prices is a little bit easier for policymakers, or when they're applied to broader sectors, they tend to sort of stop short uh, a little bit more quickly than the more sectoral focused programs. Um, so basically, you see these these policies implemented alongside stronger regulatory and public investment measures. And we describe this outcome as, as what we call Potemkin markets in the book. The appearance that the market is doing a lot of the work. But if you actually look behind the facade of the market, most of the mitigation activity is being driven by other forces and other policies. And a small residual is left to the market to trade. So it's not irrelevant, but the relative sort of emphasis that's placed on markets in jurisdictions that have them often belies a sort of inverse function of what they actually do in the background. Okay. Danny, why do you think that there has been such a rhetorical dominance of market policies in the carbon and climate change space over the last 30 years, as you just said? Um, it's hard for me to say, sort of give one sort of take on that. I think if you rewind and think about how the discipline of economics has sort of slowly crept into the climate conversation. Um, and actually, just as a brief aside, you know, many of the most prominent social science disciplines are, are kind of late to the climate party. Um, and arguably, political science is one of the later ones. That's maybe the tradition in which I was writing and, and my colleague David comes from. Um, but, but a lot of the economic analysis that was done, especially in the early days in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, was thinking about really simplified systems like global systems. And it was, you know, early academic researchers like people like Bill Nordhaus are modeling sort of the optimum global trajectory. Um, and a lot of the research that's done 
comes from a variety of economic and applied economic camps where markets are sort of the, the dominant ideological tool. I think the other main reason that you see them reflected in this in this way is that the politics of trying to navigate a global deal on climate ever since the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention was signed has been about, frankly, the debate between the wealthier countries that have historically high emissions and the lower income countries that are growing in terms of their emissions share. And so most of the political economy of those international discussions is really drawn on differential levels of responsibility and contribution, where the argument goes, it'll be easier to advance global deals if we can trade who's going to do what work. Um, if we can say a wealthier country that faces high domestic costs could invest in lower cost opportunities to reduce emissions in an emerging economy, that was seen as a ticket to unlocking the politics uh, at the international negotiating table. And we can talk about why that hasn't worked, but I think that's the other major structural explanation. You have economists coming out of a traditional sort of neoclassical paradigm, bringing markets to the fore, and you have this, this serious problem of international coordination where no one has enough political ambition to get anything done today, and maybe trading will allow us to do more uh, on net uh, if everything works out well. Okay. And Danny, could you explain a bit further what this concept of Potemkin market means and where it comes from? Yeah, I mean, so this this is a concept modeled after um, you know a, a sort of discussion of how the the fabled czarist villages work. The you know the the czar would the czarina would go to visit villages on the outskirts of the Russian capital to see how regional economic development was going. And the story goes, people would sort of paint the facades of buildings, and it would look very pretty from a distance. But if you look behind them, everything you know was not going so well. Um, and we we invoke this this metaphor to describe what's going on because. You know, in the jurisdictions that have adopted um, carbon market policies, you, you typically see those jurisdictions also having really strong regulatory policies. So, for example, a, a jurisdiction like California has really strong clean energy standards that require the electric utilities to procure a growing share of their production from renewables and other zero carbon assets. Um, you see vehicle standards, you see building standards, you see traditional regulatory instruments that attempt to steer and shape the mitigation outcomes in key sectors, on top of which is layered a carbon market. And the critical interaction that uh, justifies the Potemkin market label from our point of view is when you have a sector-specific policy, like let's say a renewable portfolio standard, that's going to tell the utility to reduce its emissions by buying clean energy. If the utility is also subject to a carbon market, as it is in, in California, that utility has to comply with the regulatory mandate which achieves a mitigation outcome, which reduces the emissions liability for that utility, and therefore sort of reduces demand for carbon allowances in the carbon market. So the more successful and ambitious the sectoral regulatory policies are, the less work is left to the markets. We talk about markets trading the residual as most of the work gets done by these direct regulatory policies, and a relatively small share of the overall mitigation targets are traded in the markets. So they create the appearance of a comprehensive market that's doing a lot of work, but in fact, they tend to be pricing just the last you know, couple of 10 percentage points of the mitigation goals these jurisdictions are pursuing. And so that the, the metaphor of the Potemkin market is, is sort of look behind the curtain, like, like the Wizard of Oz. There's kind of less going on here than you think. Well, that's not to say it isn't important. It's just um, typically these programs are doing much less of the work than their proponents promote. Okay. So in, in that last bit, Danny, you also preempted one of my next questions, which is because of this situation, 
Um, does that lead to uh, one a potential difficulty in effectively evaluating the effectiveness of carbon markets because they're layered onto every all this other stuff that's happening? And two, as you kind of already alluded to, does it lead to people overestimating their impact if they're kind of implicitly being given the credit for a lot of the more regulatory things that are happening? Yes to both. So if you're really seriously trying to say what effect a carbon market had in a, let's just say one jurisdiction, you have to know what's going on in that jurisdiction. You have to know all of the regulatory policies that apply to the sectors that are covered by the cap and trade program. You have to have a sense of the efficacy of those regulatory policies. You have to have a sense of how much mitigation is expected to be left over to the markets. You have to model many, many different things to get a clear sense of what's going on. And, you know, frankly, most people aren't doing that. And it's extremely difficult to do that. If you were to naively look at uh, one of these Potemkin markets, and I'll use the California example just because it's a, it's a it's a pretty easy situation. Historically, we relied on something like 80% of the work coming from regulatory instruments and something like 20% of the work coming from the market. So if you look at at the carbon price that was present in the California system for the first several years of its operations at the lowest sort of administratively allowed level. It was, you know, 10 rising to $15 a ton. And you might look at that and say, wow, the cost of pursuing California's climate mitigation targets, which are ambitious, is quite low because the market price is also quite low. What that analysis would miss is that a lot of the reductions that are sort of booked and therefore reduce demand for allowances and therefore reduce the price of carbon in that system are legal mandates that companies subject to these regulatory programs have to follow. They have costs, and sometimes those costs are significantly higher than the explicit carbon, carbon market price would suggest. So that, I think there's a tendency, and you see this particularly in, in pro-market NGOs, to promote the apparent cost effectiveness of these programs that completely ignores the fact that they're only pricing the residual. So mm. the explicit price you see is the price of closing out whatever mitigation is needed. And that is a reflective price instrument if all of the work is being done by the market. And it is a really misleading price signal if most of the work is being done by other policies. So where do you think we go from here in terms of improving the situation? Can we try to fix things about carbon markets? You mentioned carbon taxes as being maybe the other dominant part, part of the carbon pricing space. Um, how do we deal with these political and analytical issues? So the argument we make in the book is that the number one thing we need to do is recognize that the political barriers to carbon pricing are structural. They're not ephemeral. They are difficult. They're unlikely to be surmounted consistently or in very many places, and that it's a mistake to over rely on these programs. We are not making the argument that they're all dumb or they're stupid and no one should do any of this. Far from it. But I think the sort of political reality is that these programs are never going to lead, uh, I think, pretty much anywhere. Um, and I think that that recognition is maybe the most important thing. That's frankly not a change in behavior because we think that's a description of the world as it exists. It's not a description of the sort of elite conversation around climate policy tools, but it it's pretty accurate description of what climate policymakers are doing in practice anyway. Um, 
we also have a, a whole chapter in the book dedicated to how to do more with these programs. And the, the key insights from the book were to describe the main political forces that constrain the ambition of these carbon pricing programs. So what are the forces that keep you from relying more on markets if you want to do that? And, and a couple of them that are really critical, we've talked about this Potemkin market dynamic, which, which makes it really hard to make a cap and trade program work because you're always trading the residual and the politics of these regulatory policies are always easier to pursue. So in every jurisdiction that's got a market, they also are trying to push harder on these regulatory policies. So there's this really complex supply demand dance that's mediated through the really toxic politics of increasing prices, which is what carbon pricing requires you to do. Um, we think taxes are, are politically superior in terms of their implementation they're also well understood to be politically more challenging because if you want to pass a law that says let's raise the price of energy with a carbon tax, your opponents will critique you for the impacts of higher energy prices, which is one of the reasons that policymakers have tended to prefer markets because they say, well, we're not going to raise your prices. We're just creating a mandate to clean up the pollution. And then these efficient markets are going to make that really cheap and low cost, which is a great idea if you didn't have the structural politics that ended up getting you stuck in low gear basically every time. So we make the argument that where you have the politics to do carbon taxes, they're, they're better because they play well with regulations, which are the dominant political strategy we see. If you have a clean energy mandate, adding on a carbon price pushes you in the right direction. Adding on a cap and trade program requires you to balance supply and demand and think about all these complexities in ways that we think are, are very difficult, if not broadly ungovernable. Um, so taxes are better, and we have a number of detailed strategies on how cap and trade program implementation can be made to look more like taxes and introduce some of the concepts that make taxes a little bit easier to work with, um, drawing largely on the experience of the European market that has, especially before the Russian-Ukraine war, implemented successfully some of these reforms, but um, like everybody else is struggling in the face of high prices today. Is your take on, on carbon markets... Has, has that been experienced as controversial? Have you been criticized for, have people interpreted you as being too down on markets? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally received that feedback, although I, I guess I'm really struck. We wrote the, the book in late 2019, early 2020, um, and we sent the manuscript off in March of 2020 as I was transitioning jobs and the world was screeching to a halt. And it felt like at the time we actually wrote the book itself, that it was a highly controversial broad thesis that markets were sucking up all the oxygen in the room, but not delivering and unlikely to deliver. And I got to say, I just don't feel like that's a very controversial position uh, at this point. Um, and that's been an interesting transition to watch. But I do think um, there's a lot, you know, if, if you're paying attention online, um, there's a lot of tension between the political science and economics communities over the political economy about how to move forward on climate. And especially with the United States adopting sort of the opposite of carbon pricing as its approach um, to climate policy under the Biden administration. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of those tensions have been inflamed. And I, I know people have sort of said, oh, you're too critical on markets. I'm torn because I also spend a lot of my time in California, where I serve uh, on the advisory panel for the, the state's cap and trade program, which is stuck in a rut for all the reasons we describe in the book. And I, I keep trying to make the carbon price more ambitious and in line with the requirements of state law. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm torn between getting pushback from people on being too critical and also wondering 
you know, where really serious proponents, when they're going to show up to the actual programs and policies that are in place and, and start making them better, because I don't see a lot of that right now. I see a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, what if the United States had a carbon price or should we have pursued a different path to a, a climate policy proposal in this administration? And, and those are important conversations to be had, but on the ground, you know, I think things kind of look as the book describes. Mm, okay. So I want to now talk about carbon offsets, which are, I mean, maybe not an, a necessary part of a carbon market, but certainly are have played an important role in this space. Could you talk about what carbon offsets are and again, what they're supposed to do? So carbon offsets are really essential to understanding the politics of carbon markets. And increasingly, as we see uh, you know, proliferation of both government and private net zero standards, where companies and governments say we're going to be net zero by a certain date, offsets is just front and center in that conversation. We can talk about why. So the idea behind a carbon offset, let's, let's think about uh, an international trading program for a second here. So supposing the US wants to make uh, a commitment to reduce its emissions. Uh, but it's perceived that the cost of reducing emissions domestically is going to be relatively high and it's going to face political pushback. And it's also perceived that reducing emissions somewhere else is going to be cheaper. The, the basic idea here is there's a, there's a trade to be made where instead of imposing higher domestic costs on, for example, the energy industry, um, we could allow the energy industry to keep emitting in exchange for investing in opportunities outside of the system to reduce emissions and basically import credits. So it's it's giving some where flexibility, if you like, where are the emission reductions going to take place instead of inside the system, they're going to take place outside. We're essentially outsourcing where that all goes. And the, the theory is that this is a gain from trade. Um, the practical reality of carbon offsets is that in every single compliance program, that's to say the mandatory government programs that we studied in our book, they have been used to fundamentally dilute uh, and render impotent the carbon markets of which they're a part. They're extraordinarily low quality and structural political forces help us understand why that why that is. So think if you're a, imagine you're a petroleum refiner or a power plant that's subject to a carbon market. If you don't have carbon offsets, the domestic system is going to be relatively high cost. You're going to face higher costs. You might have to take actions. If instead you can buy forest offsets from something outside of your system and say, I protected trees over here. It, it produced an equivalent climate benefit, and I will buy that equivalent climate benefit and continue sort of business as usual here. Um, that's sort of your goal. And I just want to be clear, that is not a pejorative description. That is a like a functional description of the goal of the offsetting program when you allow you know participants in these markets to do it. So the structural political interests of the oil refiner are totally different than the structural political interests of like a high-minded academic trying to figure out how to set up an offsets program and do it well. What the refinery wants is the highest number of credits at the lowest possible cost. And again, that is not a pejorative description. That's just pure economics. They want as many alternative rights to pollute as they can be granted. It's not that they are necessarily actively seeking low quality credits, but they don't really care so long as the government regulator blesses whatever they get. The function of carbon offsets in these programs politically is to keep the domestic carbon price from rising to a politically unacceptable level. So as people sort of threaten to go on attack ad campaigns, which again happens a lot in these jurisdictions, as the incumbent refiners and other you know heavy industries say, 
we will fight you, the politicians implementing this program, if you don't run it in the way we want to see it run. Offsets has, has been one of the, the easy ways to sort of accommodate all of those interests. So the policymaker says, we'll allow for offsets. Um, we'll go direct them at a bunch of things that people feel good about, like so-called nature-based climate solutions. And we'll come up with a structure for sort of, you know, creating these credits, giving people the right to pollute and allowing for these transactions. And the, the problem with all of this is that the buyers of these credits are not seeking quality, they're seeking quantity. And a low-priced offset credit has got, it, it's the most suspect claim you can find in the market. And the reason is for carbon offsets to actually keep the atmosphere whole, they have to represent an additional climate benefit. So it's a benefit that would not have occurred in the absence of the incentive from the from the carbon offset. And this additionality problem is extraordinarily difficult to govern because it turns on a counterfactual. The difference between a business as usual world and a world in which somebody comes along and says, I'm going to protect the trees, I'm going to do whatever the set of activities are. And a low cost carbon offset is a claim that with just a small change in price, you go from being very confident a bad thing is going to happen to being very confident a good thing is going to happen. That's a very suspect claim to be making on the basis of something that cannot be directly observed and therefore cannot be governed objectively. And time and time again, in these carbon offset markets, we see insiders forming coalitions to create pathways to start minting large volumes of credits to supply the political demand for accommodations to keep prices low. And in the compliance markets, your buyers do not care about quality. If the government, particularly a progressive government implementing a world leading climate policy says these credits are good, you're done. You don't have to worry about anything. And so that's been the really toxic political dynamic. We've seen it for decades now in multiple systems, and it keeps repeating itself. So is this basically greenwashing, enabling a large company to say that it's being sustainable without having to really fundamentally change much? Yep. Yeah. And again, what's striking about this is this this all sound, I mean, it's all deep in the weeds and it's incredibly esoteric. But when you actually look at the supplies of carbon offsets into major programs, they end up looking in some cases like the entire mitigation expected from the program. So it's really extraordinary the extent to which large supplies of carbon offsets have affected the European and California markets in particular, where a lot of the action that those programs claim to accomplish on paper is really by redirecting the mitigation from inside of the program to the external offset projects that are supposedly creating those additional climate benefits, but are essentially not like comprehensively regulated. In a lot of cases, experience very obvious regulatory capture. I mean, it reminds me of this kind of moral licensing psychology where if I buy a carbon credit for a flight I'm taking, that makes me feel really good. It makes me feel like I've done what I need to do for the climate and I can keep on doing what I want to do. Right. Although in, in these compliance markets, it's less about the sort of individual psychology of how you relate to decisions you're making and, and quite literally these complex structures that say we've complied with the climate law and the climate law says we're going to make all these changes. But via these transactions, the claimed changes are occurring somewhere else and they're fundamentally unobservable because they turn on counterfactual scenarios that are rarely able to be studied directly. Right. If you're interested, we can talk about how to do that. But again, all the, the careful studies that have created synthetic counterfactuals that have done all the experimental controls you would want to think about in these large-scale offset programs, they basically reached the identical conclusion um, every single time, which is there's major problems in all of these major offset programs. So my question then to you about offsets is mirrors what I asked you about carbon markets in general. Like given these challenges, 
what do you think we do? Is your is the conclusion that we should just not allow carbon offsets because it's giving people a backdoor exit from the larger policy? So in the book, we make a very strong argument about offsets. And I want to I want to carefully uh, caveat this with saying the book concerns so-called compliance markets. That's when governments run these programs. We can talk about the voluntary market where I think many of the same problems apply and the situation is arguably a little bit more complicated. In the compliance markets, we argue offsets should just be abandoned um, because they serve two political functions that can be better accommodated through less destructive means. The two things they do are they keep prices low. So if you want to keep prices low in a trading system, having a bunch of offsets will do that for you. We think if that's the political goal that needs to be addressed, and realistically that needs to be addressed, it's better to just create market designs that deliver that outcome directly rather than using fake credits to get you there. The other goal they serve, and this is part of the reason they've proven so popular in the constituencies that have advocated for market-based policies, is they essentially direct rents to, to key stakeholders. So if you're an environmental NGO that, that is interested in funding conservation, and there's a, like a, quite a few very large budget NGOs that do this, offsets create a vehicle for you to come in and say, here's how to do it right. We'll put our sticker on it. You can trust us for doing it. And they essentially, uh, if you think about it this way, if you told a refinery, you have to buy an allowance to pollute from the state, that's money that goes from the refinery to the state and the state can spend it. They can recycle the money back to residents. They can do all sorts of things with it. An offset credit says, instead of buying the allowance from the state or from another refinery, you can buy it from this conservation project. So essentially, this is creating a, a circuit of rents that move outside of the direct government oversight. And lots of stakeholders and, frankly, quite a few academics increasingly uh, have you know, picked up on this being a large source of revenue and have built business models around participating in it in a variety of ways. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. I've I've started to hear through the grapevine more opportunities for ecologists to you know to do carbon accounting work, which is you know it's a career and a job opportunity for them that wasn't there you know however many years ago. Yeah, and, and that part is great. And and the problem is that um, at least from my perspective, a lot of what's going on in these markets is is not actually delivering real climate benefits. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I think the ecologists who who've sort of looked carefully at this stuff have have maybe raise some of the loudest alarms around the outcomes. Just as a brief aside, I, I mentioned this sort of money flowing issue. The argument we make in the book is, you know, you should be you know, charging people to pollute and spending the money on the things you want to spend money on. It's better for that to be run through a public program with oversight than through these opaque crediting transactions that are basically ungovernable. Um, but that's a, that's a real function they serve. And I want to be clear, it's not just sort of self-dealing. Um, lots of stakeholders, if you take a, a state like Oregon or Washington, for example, forestry, rural communities, tribal communities, there's lots of political considerations to think about. Carbon markets are about creating and allocating value. You're essentially creating private tradable rights for global commons type issues. And you do want to include and accommodate stakeholders for political necessity and for social justice aims. The idea that, that we don't want to do that, uh, I think, is mistaken. The, the argument we make in the book is doing it through offsets leads to regulatory capture and rent seeking and doing it through public expenditures provides the opportunity to do it in a much better way. doesn't necessarily guarantee it, but you, you get stuck in the same pattern when you do it through offsets. And we've seen it for decades. You mentioned Danny, these voluntary markets. And my understanding is this is a, you know, a space of really enormous growth. Could you talk about how these are different from the mandatory compliance markets and where you see them headed? So 
I'm going to articulate a couple of differences, but before I do that, I, I want to argue they're exactly the same. And the reason is if you look at who actually writes the rules, it's typically the same people and sometimes it's the very same rules. So the actual standards that could develop for what counts as a project and what earns a credit, many of the public sector standards originated in the private sector and have been transformed very little, if at all. So you actually sort of look through all of this. The, the overlap between private and public governance is extraordinary. Um, and I think the researcher who's maybe done the most to contribute to this understanding is uh, Jess Green, a political scientist at the University of Toronto, has written a lot about this this interaction between public and private regulatory authority in these areas. And I can't emphasize enough when it comes to offsets that they're the same actors at the end of the day. Um, the the difference I want to draw out, and this is something that, that caught me a little bit by surprise uh, when I first started working on this maybe two and a half years ago, is that in the voluntary markets, there are buyers who want to do better. And I think as a, as a sort of broad matter from a political perspective, that's not true in the compliance markets. Everybody's trying to minimize compliance costs. Um, but I think some of the voluntary market participants actually do want to do substantially better in a way that you don't see represented in the compliance market discourse. The flip side is that there's lots of overt and intentional greenwashing that's arguably even worse. So there's a much sort of broader spectrum of stakeholder perspectives and interests on the buyer side of these markets. And it's a really complicated time because these markets languished for a long time um, in obscurity. And around the time uh, a couple of years ago where everybody started making net zero pledges, there was this sentiment that the voluntary markets are going to have to massively scale if they're going to provide the credits that especially companies and maybe increasingly people and individual consumers want to buy to substantiate those claims. What's weird about all of this is the supply really isn't there just yet. There's just an enormous amount of discussion around how to massively scale up enterprises that um, if you look carefully at them, basically all of the major market segments in the voluntary market are rife with non-additional outcomes, or they credit carbon that's only temporarily stored in forests or soils, especially forests that is fundamentally incomparable from a physical science perspective to fossil CO2 emissions. And we're just sort of stuck right now as the quality concerns in the voluntary market and the legacy segments are, I think, widely understood by experts, disputed almost universally by the private standard setting organizations that uh, effectively run the voluntary markets. And the catch 22 we're all in is, is sort of how are we gonna move forward? Is new stuff going to come forward that's better? There are a variety of efforts to try and do that. Um, it's really hard to do that when everybody sells the same product, which is a ton. Every single offset credit says I'm worth one ton. I'm just as good as any other ton and all tons are perfect. On the ground, some projects are totally bogus and obviously fraudulent. Some are probably very problematic and some might be good. Um, and I think one of the things we're all sort of stuck on is how do you assert what a good credit is? And what do you do when the legacy standard setting organizations assert that all credits are good credits when everybody knows they're not? But so one key difference here, Danny, you mentioned is, is the motivation of the folks who are purchasing the offsets. What is the, what is the motivation for folks to participate in a voluntary carbon market? Like, why do you think they're coming to the table? Is it because of um, is it some as a signaling exercise or is that too simplistic? I don't know. I think I think it's an important question. I won't pretend to know the answer to. I will say in my experience, I've encountered a number of large buyers who really are well-read and discerning and are trying to figure out how to do the right thing. I don't have a complete explanation as to why they bring that integrity to the conversation. Um, 
I think one of the things I've been really interested in is if you sort of zoom back out for a second here and you think about net zero, which is what we need to think about to stabilize planetary temperatures. If you think about the physical science of net zero, not the sort of marketing nonsense, but what the science requires, it requires that any ongoing emissions, which need to be very small, are balanced by permanent carbon removal. And we basically don't have permanent carbon removal today. Um, there's practically no supply in terms of any meaningful scale of technologies or biophysical or ecological interventions that securely lock carbon out of the atmosphere for a time frame that's comparable to the physical impacts when you put it in the atmosphere and in the oceans um, from fossil CO2. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me from a political economy and markets perspective is watching how the investment in, frankly, a bunch of startup companies and a, and a few large buyers to create this market has approached the quality conversation with a very different set of politics and I think ultimately a much higher degree of rigor than that conversation has evolved in the legacy components of the voluntary market, which are still selling, I mean, people are still selling, you know, offset credits for new renewable energy projects in countries where renewable energy is the cheapest form of investment and you should not be claiming a climate benefit that's additional on the basis of that investment. And people are just minting those credits and running around and saying, don't worry about my current pollution because somebody else is building a wind farm. And that's, that's bullshit. Um, but that's, that's kind of where the legacy markets are. How much of this is also, you know, thinking about like the Bay area and the tech industry and certain sectors of capitalism who are, you know, how much of this is kind of, there's always, you know, what's the next big thing. It's like, what's the next big thingism? And there's kind of a, um entrepreneurial FOMO that people have that they always want to be riding the next wave. People want to be founders. There's this whole culture behind a lot of this. How much of that stereotype do you think applies to this space? I think as an observation about the kinds of people and ways of engaging that people have in this space, there's a lot of validity to that observation. I think the, the question is, does that turn into something that's useful and functional in the long run? And uh, you know, I confess, I've, I've been in the physical environs of Silicon Valley since college, and uh, that's not my culture personally, but I've been around it for a long time and have watched it do various silly things. I remember I was in grad school during the first clean tech boom when you know very silly VCs were running around buying grad students dinner to learn about things that any undergraduate engineer could have repeated you know, from a textbook. Um, and most of them lost a lot of money and were very foolish. Um, there's something different right now. And I really do believe it, that the tension, I think, that the sort of green capitalist forces that are best represented right now in climate by the Silicon Valley interest in carbon removal, the big tension I see is who's going to pay for all of this? So supposing you have a technology to, to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and stick it underground. And I think those are promising technologies. And I, I think we can do that well and, and account for it carefully. Um, it's just one of the ways we could do this, but that's certainly one of the ways that's being discussed. Who's going to pay for that? What's your market? Who are your buyers? And I think the tension I see in a lot of these conversations is that any good scholar, especially somebody coming from a, a critical political economy perspective, says, well, ultimately, that's the public. Ultimately, that's the government. Who wants to pay for a climate benefit that has no local environmental benefits other than the like investment in the jobs and, and infrastructure that gets built to support this stuff. It is really hard to construct a theory for who's going to buy this that isn't ultimately the government. 
And, you know, Silicon Valley is, you know, not known for launching businesses that are primarily oriented around eventual government buyers. Um, and I think to me, that's one of the most interesting tensions here is how do we set something up and recognize that the only long-term value proposition is going to be a government off-taking situation. And folks are not like, this is not a surprise to people, but, you know, I, I just suddenly you, you go from thinking about, you know, how to build new ideas and all of the enthusiasm and culture you, you get from Silicon Valley around that kind of stuff to how do you think about durable political models to create policy systems that are robust and resilient? And right now, you know, the one sort of example of that that's out there is that these so-called 45Q tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act were expanded and extended. So there is a, a crediting pipeline that's available to a narrow subset of these carbon removal activities that you know, I think everybody's sort of looking at that's going to be one of the main monetization pathways. And if we're going to get serious about this, we need to think about what is a durable politics and what is the role of public utility in all of this in the long run. And those are questions you don't typically hear um, with Silicon Valley types. Okay. So you also mentioned um, th this importance of technologies for permanent carbon removal which you know sounds in some ways like a holy grail. You're not paying people to keep trees that maybe they were going to not cut down in the first place that could then in 10 years be undercut by a forest fire. And there's all this ecological complexity that you're and social complexity that you're dealing with in these real world systems. And the counter argument that you hear currently is that we can't scale these things economically, these technologies. Could you talk to me about what you think the promise of these technologies is and what role you would hope they would play in carbon policy? So one of the reasons I really enjoy as a researcher, as an intellectual challenge working on carbon removal is that I just want to be really clear, none of this matters if we don't radically cut like most of our emissions. And that is the first and highest priority. Um, I I think what's so interesting about carbon removal is if you take the physical science of net zero seriously, which I think some people are starting to do and others are, again, for a lot of people, it turns into a vacuous marketing exercise. But if you think really carefully about what it's going to be required to physically stabilize planetary temperatures, let alone start to reduce them, which is a whole nother conversation, um, we are going to need gigaton scale carbon removal. And I get into lots of arguments with people about exactly how big and scary that number should be. I do not want to invoke moral hazard. People do it all the time. If you just add up like the nitrogen loading, the N2O emissions we put into the atmosphere from agricultural activities, which we currently do not know how to mitigate very well, you very quickly get to a gigaton scale in terms of what's going to be required to balance the warming effects of anthropogenic emissions of long-lived greenhouse gases. So there's this like physical need for a climate service that I am very confident in and would recommend to people, however uncomfortable that is, start to think about it, not as a stakeholder proposition, but as a as a need that emerges from like balancing radiative forcing and stabilizing temperature. And I think what's so challenging about this is for me personally, I don't see how this isn't effectively a public utility because there really is no private benefit of any cognizable economic nature I can think of. That said, of all of the things that are happening in the space right now, I think the activities that are happening in the private sector around carbon removal procurement and industry shaping are happening the fastest and with the highest degree of fidelity and integrity 
to the quality issues we touched on with respect to conventional carbon offsets and the complexity is of pursuing these various approaches. And I should mention, there are easily a half dozen. All of them will melt your mind if you think really carefully about them. Each of them brings its own complexity with you know, chemistry, um, you know, geophysical fluid flows, thermodynamics of chemical engineering. All of them are very complicated. Um, and I, I guess what I think is so striking right now is I look at the private sector actors that are engaged on these issues and I think some of them are acting in a way that is much more thoughtful and government-like than most of the governments I see working on and talking about these issues. Mm. That's a paradox for me because most of those people are not the people you would expect to see in an academic seminar around how to think about paying for a public utility in the long run about all of this. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of, you've mentioned this several times that we can't in some ways like take our eyes off the ball in terms of mitigation and that's kind of been that's been an underlying concern of mine with respect to a lot of this space, particularly with offsets and the potential for a focus on um, some approaches to kind of make it easy to not change other behavior. There's this model in my mind that I use. It's not mine, but it's it's a systems dynamics model called shifting the burden, which basically argues that. If you have a problem, you can deal with the underlying drivers of that problem, or you can deal with approximate symptoms of those underlying drivers, you know, band-aid solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And the concern about, you know, the good thing about dealing with proximate symptoms is that it's usually more politically feasible to do, but it then also potentially takes away any signals that there is an underlying driver that's still lying, you know, still lurking around. Um, so you kind of... I'm, it sounds like you share that concern in, in different language. Okay. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's when I think about like, you know, in, in some ways, and this is one of the things I really appreciated about your book is that you're talking about the need to face political reality. Cause I think there's often a tendency to, and I see this in my own work in local systems, a tendency to want to technologize our way out. And I know this is also a well-worn critique, um, technologize our way out of what are otherwise like pretty politically intractable problems. And I like what you're saying is that we need to actually kind of, you know, change what is politically feasible, right? So we, we need to like kind of endogenize that to what we're actually, the strategies that we're taking. I think that's right. And and the work that, that my colleagues and I do these days on permanent carbon removal, again, one of the things that's so fascinating about it is we would be really lucky to get costs under $100 a ton to do this stuff right. That would be a big success. That's the goal the federal government has set. And is, you know, again, trust me when I say that's a very good outcome. That is like an order of magnitude higher than voluntary market prices and then some. The specter of an unlimited supply of cheap offsets that allows a decision maker, particularly in a corporate environment, to say, should I invest money in decarbonizing my supply chain or should I buy something to cover up the symptoms of the problem? Yep. is possible only because right now we have an adequate supply of very low cost, very low quality credits. And there's actually something really interesting about focusing on what it means. And, and to analogize to your, your point about sort of cleaning up the system, carbon removal is actually about, if you do it right, is about cleaning up the fundamental damage that's been done to the atmosphere. And if you do that right, which is not what everybody's doing, but what some people are trying to do, um, you're going to end up with a higher price point you're going to be exerting significant effort on behalf of a, of a global public good. And that, in some respects, might help crystallize the disconnect between the sort of Band-Aid stuff that's going on right now, that 
again, my big worry right now is is take a typical C-suite corporate executive at a large, you know, Fortune 500 company. Chances are that person doesn't know a lot about climate. Those are some of the people we want to be, you know, thinking about and and dealing with climate. If their CFO comes to them and says, we can invest in our supply chain, but it costs a lot of money, or we can buy these outside stickers that at least from my point of view, don't really do anything. That's a losing battle to be in from an advocacy and from a policy perspective. And the more we understand the, the true cost of cleaning up what's been done, I think the more we can bring that into sharp relief. There's a variety of other forces we can, we can talk about as well about, you know, do people really want to offset their way out of this problem? And I think one of the things we're starting to see is that especially large industrial companies that are producing commodities and trade exposed markets, they don't want to throw money at outside costs, the things that go outside their value chain. Um, some of them are starting to explore with low carbon technologies and internal investments. Um, and they require a policy strategy to protect and accommodate them as they do so. But I, I do think sort of a bright note of optimism here. I do think the the sort of infinite demand for greenwashing may be somewhat of a mirage because I think for a lot of companies, the idea of sending money outside of their value chains to buy a sticker that is increasingly seen as an activity of greenwashing is going to reach a natural conclusion. Mm. Um, and hopefully some of these politics will revert back to how do we think about managing our domestic emissions profile at the company or at the government level? Okay. Semi-final question. Do you want to talk more about, do you have more thoughts about the Inflation Reduction Act um, and its impact on this space potentially, or are there other policy-oriented topics that you want to make sure we cover? Happy to chat about that uh, wherever you want to go. Yeah. I mean, if there are thoughts you have about the, it's funny to call it an IRA, but that's yeah. the acronym that I've heard. Yep. What role do you see that playing in the next couple of years? It's, I mean, it's not a brand new piece of legislation at this point, but I still feel like I'm processing like all of the emotional turmoil over the path to this bill becoming law, as well as if you've been working in climate mitigation for longer, this is the first major federal bill that really crossed the finish line and you know lots of debate and acrimony within the community about how best to do that and i think one of the things that i've, I've been sort of thinking about is in some respects the focus on investment which is this is really a government spending bill it's a tax policy bill um it is you know in some respects reflects one of the core lessons of the book, which is that the politics of raising energy prices through carbon pricing is, is like really hard to do. I don't want to suggest that the book caused that or, or, or predicted it necessarily so much as to say there's a, there's a lot in there that makes sense to me as a pivot. And there's been a lot of clashing as to like, were the political scientists right and the economists wrong? And, and I think a lot of that discussion has been counterproductive. It's going to be really challenging because this, this bill basically sets up a lot of spending. Um, it doesn't set up a lot of governance. And with a very few limited exceptions, for example, the, the funding for the Department of Energy's loan guarantee program and a green bank, where the leadership of those program offices is going to have access to a lot of money and a lot of leverage and can, through governance and policy, say, what do we want to build and how with a little bit more fidelity, most of the rest of the money is flowing out through tax credits. There are going to be really important regulatory processes that nobody understands outside of the narrow communities that hope to access those tax credits as to where to draw the line. What is clean, for example? There's a, an active consideration happening at the Department of Energy around a very generous uh, tax credit policy for so-called green or clean hydrogen. And the question is, 
where is the DOE going to draw the line on what's defined as clean? What sources of emissions are they going to look at? Will it allow for um, hydrogen produced from natural gas to participate under what conditions? Those are really critical governance questions. And outside of a few regulatory processes as to where to draw a line, there's not going to be a lot of active hands on government steering. It's going to be largely private sector driven. And I think there's just an enormous tension. If you're somebody like me who says the carbon pricing theory of politics just doesn't work, and it's a mistake to put all of your political eggs in that basket, as some jurisdictions have in the past. I look at this this pivot, if you will, and I see some some really bright spots. The downside is that you need good governance and you need sound policy design to really navigate, especially the interests of incumbents that don't want to change all that much. Um, there are very few tools that the government has under this program to do that. Um, and there's, as I'm sure you know, a, a very acrimonious debate about whether we need permitting reform and a variety of other changes to the way our environmental laws work that are going to open up, I think, really serious coalitional divides between a very broad coalition that included green capitalists and a variety of you know, environmental groups, um, where those interests are going to be sharply divided when it comes to questions like, you know, can you basically cut through a lot of the environmental review process should key landmark environmental laws not apply to certain kinds of projects. How many uh, kinds of industries benefiting from those changes do the different stakeholders, are they willing to tolerate? And I think those are going to be really already proven to be divisive questions, but that division is not going away anytime soon. Mm. I mean, what the, the complexity of what you're describing and all these different processes reminds me, Danny, of this distinction between well, kind of just the spectrum of visibility, right? When a major law passes, it's highly visible, it's highly salient. And there's just this sea of energy and activity preceding it and following it that's much less visible to people, as you said, who are not like a part of these um, specific communities. Um, I'm not sure how, how much farther I can take that observation other than it does seem to impact our evaluation of, of what is most, like, what is actually visible to us as outsiders? It's honestly, it's a core theme of, of the book on carbon markets. I mean, one of the, we sort of talked about the broad voting public as one of the key constituencies and then, you know, industries that are affected by the program as, a, as another key constituency. And the the salience and awareness and public perception is, is really challenging. It is so easy to tweak a few knobs in a carbon pricing program and render it environmentally toothless in a way that, you know, no one but six scholars could figure out. Um, all the lobbyists will understand it, but there'll be very little public salience. The ability to weaken those programs is really high. And I think there's been a lot of good and thoughtful work from political scientists thinking about the political economy of other issue areas. But I think this is a key issue. The capacity of the state to make wise governance decisions um, is a really critical variable. And our argument about relying more on state power to do that is very heavily and explicitly premised on state capacity being robust. Mm. And I worry, especially in the United States, that is really a, a stretch in a lot of places, um, not to demean people who are trying to do good work on this front, but you know, there, there's just there's a lot of information asymmetry between government regulators and private stakeholders and being able to sort of take risky propositions that push things forward um, and setting the exact right risk appetite for doing that. It takes a lot of skill. And with the political instability in this country, I just don't think you see a lot of people, you know, 
in career positions doing that, nor a lot of credibility that people doing it right now are going to be there in four or 10 years. Yeah. That's a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the, the old adage, like personnel is policy, right? Like people who are in certain positions matter just as who are going to implement things matter just as much as like what's written down. Yeah. Um, I mean, it also reminds me of this question I've had in my own mind for a while is in environmental policy, there's, there's this very dominant discourse about, you know, which type of policy is best, you know, is it carbon tax, is it cap and trade? There are many other policies in other sectors that people think about. And increasingly, I've just had this working hypothesis that we need to be, we need to really complement those questions with questions about implementation. Like, I've almost gotten to the point where I care less about what broad type of policy is being implemented. And I'd care more about the principles that are used to implement that policy. Well, as you said, you tweak some, you tweak a policy in one way or another, and you can fundamentally change almost the, the nature of it and its efficacy. Yep. So you can tell me that it's a cap and trade scheme, but if that's all I know, even if I'm like inclined to think that that's the way to go, I don't have, you know, kind of empirically, well, Maybe you would say that empirically the evidence is that it's not going to be super successful, but, um, but that still said, you need to, you need to have knowledge of the implementation to know why that is maybe is the best way to put it. Yeah. And I, again, we, we wrote the book, I hope in a way that was tried to be sympathetic to like put yourself in the shoes of a policymaker trying to implement one of these programs and say, you want to do it well, what do you have to do? Well, you're going to have a carbon market on top of these other strong regulatory measures. So let's just, I'll just give you an example. California has a program that is explicitly authorized to the end of 2030. I think there's way too many allowances. The regulator formally disagrees, but won't release any information about it. What do you have to know to set the balance in this market at a place that doesn't cause the price to go to a politically unacceptable level, whatever that might be? You need to be able to forecast where you think macroeconomic conditions are going to be through 2030. You need to forecast technological change in the electricity sector and in the vehicle sector. And in a place like California, we actually do have a little bit of leverage in some of those policies domestically. So you have to forecast your ability to influence what you think business as usual is. You need to be able to predict like 10-year kinds of constructs across a variety of things that no sane academic would ever say, I know the answer, I figured it out. And you have to do that in an environment where a whole bunch of stakeholders tell you you're wrong. And if you're wrong in a way they don't like it, they're going to fight you politically. That's the task facing the public-minded implementation you know, agent for these policies. And I think it's, it's fundamentally ungovernable, right? Mm. So it's why a price makes more sense because you're negotiating over price and you're doing it through the complexity of an economic instrument, which I, I still kind of like thinking about, but I'm increasingly aware of there's like, very few people who don't think about environmental markets all day long who can describe the logic of how that works, which is like really hard to govern. And it means that only, you know, hyper-specialized experts who are typically paid by incumbent stakeholders really can say the right things at the right times. Mm. And so you have an additional asymmetry in the political economy of implementation because an environmental justice group shows up and says, we think offsets are hurting our community. Um, they typically don't have a PhD in econ saying, you know, I think your supply demand balance forecast is off because you, you assumed this one thing in this variable in this model. Um, but you can be sure that the oil industry harvest, hires their favorite Harvard economist to say that. Mm. One thing I would say is that I do like the notion of kind of adopting the perspective of a governmental agent, like a public sector agent. I think it's 
often the case dehumanizing is not quite the right word because it's it sounds very it's very pejorative but we often kind of say like oh the government just needs to do that or like the government etc in quotes and we don't unpack the idea that the government is made up of people who face incentives and constraints yeah and, and like these problems are really really hard a lot of them so yeah. i mean big picture into the day like we need we need super competent public administration to do any of this well the argument we tried to make in the book is if you really think carefully about the mechanics of implementing trading programs, they are structurally going to get stuck in low gear pretty much everywhere okay. because the constellation of political forces is always pressing in one direction, and it takes extraordinary skill and luck to find opportunities to create different outcomes. So it's not to say we shouldn't, and it's not to say that the right thing to do is abandon programs we already have, but the idea that tomorrow everybody's going to wake up and implement a cap and trade program and you don't have to worry about other you know kinds of climate policies that's a that's a very bad idea um and at best they play a supporting role which is better than nothing and can be quite helpful but should not be mistaken for where most of the action is going to lie in one way that's a great stopping point i do want to ask you if there are other topics you want to make sure we introduce or threads that we started that you want to tie up danny um, nothing comes immediately to mind. I still think what's so interesting to me uh, about these kinds of systems is you're creating tradable property instruments, right? There's there's like a certificate you're going to trade, whether that's a carbon offset in the voluntary markets or a pollution allowance in a, in a compliance program. And who who governs what that financial instrument is? Um, just flag, there's like a lot of interesting tensions. There's a, a an example I like to cite Um the largest carbon offset registry in the private market has about a two-thirds market share. So they're they're very much the, the elephant in the room. And uh, earlier in their history, they allowed a bunch of very low quality, highly questionable renewable energy projects that most people think are non-additional. They were business as usual projects that people built and then said, hey, can we get some, some carbon offsets on top of something we were already gonna do and pretend that we weren't gonna build them if you didn't pay us, which was a joke nobody really believes. So there's you know hundreds of these projects on this registry system, and there's this just fantastic quote from the CEO of the registry that says, "Look, um, at the time these projects applied, we believed that they met our standards. We have subsequently looked at them, and we no longer think they're additional. But we're not going to change anything because it would be destabilizing to markets if we were to say, oh, those credits that we once issued and promised met these certain quality standards, we now acknowledge don't meet them." And so nobody should be buying and selling them. And people who bought and sold them should, you know, basically acknowledge that they bought nothing. Um, you can appreciate how that would be destabilizing to that market. But the flip side is that, you know, you basically have the CEO of the largest offsets registry saying we have a bunch of non-additional projects in our system. And we're also telling you every single credit is perfect. And that sort of tension around like who gets to say what works and what doesn't is, mm. um, I don't think a lot of people have, have quite appreciated the the extent to which that determination is it's hard enough as an objective matter. Even once people agree on the objective condition, is that credit real or not? The politics of what happens and the politics of do we account for that or adjust for that uh, are by no means automatic. And that to me is just one of those little tells that something is not quite the way the sort of classic economic theory suggests it is. Because in theory, if it doesn't deliver the benefits, it shouldn't count as a credit. Um, good luck getting those politics to work out. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.